Good morning, church. Hey, how many of y'all have seen a superhero movie recently? <laughs> Apparently, it's the only kind of movie we know how to make anymore, okay? It's superhero movies all the time, and it's honestly, for me, it's kind of getting old. But, but here's this theme that we typically see in superhero movies. That is, that people are going about their business, they're living their lives, and then there's a problem. And when there's a problem, they typically look up, or at least their help comes from above, okay? So think of, think of like superheroes like Superman, and think of like the Avengers, which the Avengers sort of messed it up because now they're like getting problem coming from above as well. But then there's another solution, Thor comes down, to, it's all muddled up, right? Uh, and then of course with the Ninja Turtles, they're not coming from above, they're sort of coming up from the sewer, okay? So I know my story doesn't really work the whole way. But my point simply is that, that usually the sort of rescue, this idea of deliverance comes from above. There's this, all of the trouble happens here, but the help comes from here, and the people look up. They look up when they're in trouble. They look up when they need help. We want that order from this other world to permeate our world. It, we want it to bring order and peace and harmony to the chaos of our world. Now, it's, we see this theme recurring throughout the Old Testament among the people of God who, whenever they faced trouble, they would look up, they would look to God for help. Consider these verses, these passages from the Old Testament that convey this theme, that convey this idea, this truth of how people have always sought help from above. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 26 through 28 says, I've paraphrased all of these, right? says, lift up your eyes and see. Psalm 123, lift up your eyes to the one enthroned in heaven, enthroned above. And of course, Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah sees this amazing vision of the Lord in this holy temple, right? He says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. My eyes are toward God, my refuge, my safe place. Psalm 141, verse 8. My eyes are always on the Lord, for he rescues me. In 2 Chronicles 20, 12, I love this one. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. But I think the one that best encapsulates this idea comes from Psalm 121, verse 6, that says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. My help comes from Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth. This morning, we're going to be in the book of Numbers, okay? We're going to see, look at a curious story from Numbers chapter 21. Now, if you've ever done an annual Bible reading plan, Numbers was likely the place where you fell off that wagon, okay? Uh, maybe for some of you is Leviticus, but those of you who braved on and soldiered on a little bit more, you dropped off in Numbers, Okay? But listen, there are all of these names and all of these historical records and all of that going on in this book. But, and there's this really cool story in chapter 21, but leaving the coolness of the story aside, here's why it's important for us today. Because what we'll see in this story in chapter 21 of Numbers is a story that bears meaning that is so heavy and that is so impactful that it leaps out of the pages of Numbers and into the pages of the New Testament. We're going to see that even in this obscure little passage in the Old Testament, 
amidst lists of names of people and all of these historical things that happened to the people of Israel in their desert wanderings, that Jesus was hidden in plain sight. So let's read together in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, and I will be reading this morning from the English Standard Version, just so you know, for those of you who are following along. Numbers 21, 4 through 9 says this, From Mount Hor, the Israelites set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient along the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Jesus is all over this, okay? He's all over this, and we're going to unpack this. But also, there are some really important lessons in this story that I think we can draw from this story that are very relevant to you and me today, okay? And we'll talk about all of that. We'll see that often that the cause of our suffering is our sin itself, and that when we are sinful, when we are rebellious against God, that that though God may discipline and punish, He's also immensely gracious. And we'll see that He has to provide, while our problems come from, from this realm, that our solutions invariably come from God. And we'll close by looking at some, um, or, or the futility of looking to purely worldly explanations or purely worldly solutions to the problems that ail us. So then as we pick up the story, what we find is that the Israelites have had to take a little detour around the land of Edom. Now, keep in mind, <clears throat> keep in mind why they are in the desert, okay? They have been rescued from slavery in Egypt, and God is bringing them to the promised land because he promised to give that land to their, their, their predecessors to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of this, and this is the fulfillment of that promise. But if you'll remember the story, they, they came out of Egypt. God did amazing things to bring them out. They crossed the Red Sea and all of that. They, they come to the edge of the promised land, and then they send, send, send a group of spies. They send some spies to go into the land and bring back a report. And what do those guys say? Ten of them. Ten of the twelve say, no way, like no way, okay? These guys have established cities, they have walls, and they're huge, by the way. We're like grasshoppers in their eyes. I know God made this promise, but it's not looking good. Joshua and Caleb disagreed. They said, hey, listen, yeah, I think we can do it. And they would go on to lead the, lead the Israelites after Moses, right? But because of their refusal to trust God, even after they had seen all of the amazing things he had done to rescue them so far and provide for them so far. Bill talked about how God provided water out of a rock for them 
God's done some amazing things for them, yet they refuse to believe. And when we look in retrospect, that was sort of par for the course for the Israelites' time in the desert. This wasn't the first time that they complained. But their complaining, their impatience led to them speaking out against Moses, led to them speaking out against God. And so they're already suffering the consequences of their sin, sinful behavior. And here they have to take another detour and guess what did they do again? They complain and they murmur and grumble. In fact, take a look at this list of 10 different times. And depending on which list you sort of, you know, you might find 12 or 15, but, but I like this one that seemed to encapsulate all of their interactions in the desert. 10 different times the people of Israel complained and murmured and refused ultimately to trust God and what he was doing with them and through them and for them. They show up to the Red Sea. Oh, my goodness. You brought us out into the desert, and we're going to die here. <laughs> There's a big old sea in front of us. What are we going to do now, Moses? And God does what? <sighs> Parts the waters. Amazing. You brought us out into the desert. In Egypt, we had meat and onions, and here we don't have meat and onions. Who complains about not having onions? Okay? They did. They're going, we should, have just, we should just go back to Egypt. We had great food there, okay? Oh, we're so thirsty. Yeah, you're in a desert. You're in a wilderness. And God brings water out of the rock for them twice. And so we see this continual theme among the people of God that they complain. And rather than take responsibility for their sin, for their refusal to trust God, they now speak out against God against their deliverer. They go and complain to Moses. And man, you got to give it to Moses. He, he put up with them for a long time. Long, all of these complaints, he received them. He was their complaints department. Apparently, the truth that Yahweh has been nothing but merciful to them and that they really have nobody but themselves to blame for their current predicament was too hard a pill for them to swallow. They could just could not take responsibility for the situation in which they found themselves. Is it that much different for us today? Is it that much different where people today will attribute their problems to anything and everything but themselves? I love this one. I came across a number of these, right? <laughs> I don't blame others for my mistakes. I blame the same people every time. There was a story several years ago, you may have followed it in the news, where some, uh, I think it was a woman, um, she was burned by a very hot coffee from McDonald's. Anybody follow that story? <laughs> I thought it was nuts. Well, there was a story not too long ago, pretty more recently, uh, where uh, the same sort of thing happened, but with the chicken nugget at this time, okay? Uh, this woman gives a nugget to her child who's sitting in her car seat, and the child drops the nugget, apparently gets stuck between the seat and her leg, and burns a little bit of her skin. I'm going, guys, for real? It's a nugget, right? Get it together, okay? But, 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 but where, where, where is now the blame? Where is the blame going? Oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sue the company, okay, because of the injury that I have suffered. So we'll do this sort of stuff. We'll, we'll blame parents. Oh, yeah, my parents really, really let me down there. We'll blame society. We'll blame the system. Anything to keep the blame 
from falling on us. Responsibility does not find a home with us. Initially, it was that way with the Israelites, but see what happens. They eventually come around, don't they? They come around and say, they come to Moses and go, okay, you know what? We've sinned. I think as Christians, we ought to be different. We ought to be different in how we approach this. When we take stock of our own lives, man, when we can take responsibility for the ways in which we've contributed to the problems and the sufferings of our lives, can't you then go to God and ask for help? Now you're clear. You're just admitting, God, yes, I messed up. Help me. You can do that now. Major lesson in there for us, because we live in a culture that is so far along the, well, who else can I blame for my problems? Okay? We don't have a problem of, oh, people are taking too much responsibility. <laughs> no. <laughs> we need, and I think perhaps we could set an example there. Because when we can admit that, when we can take responsibility for the ways in which we have contributed to the sufferings of our own lives, then we can truly seek the help of God. But what's so interesting to me about this story is, yes, I mean, it's the, the fiery serpents. We'll get to that in just a second. But it's what, it, what, what, it's what is revealed to us about the character of God. It's what's revealed to us about the nature of God. I want us to pay attention to how God responds. First, when they grumble and complain and they speak out against Moses and speak out against God, what does he do? He sends fiery serpents to them. The word fiery is best translated venomous. He sends these venomous snakes, and that image of a fiery serpent is pretty terrifyingly awesome for me. I think it would make a great Hollywood movie, okay? Speaking of movies, okay? There's a good idea. But it was terrifyingly awesome, and God sends them as punishment for their complaining, as punishment for their refusal to trust Him. See, this time in the wilderness, God used for a specific purpose, didn't He? What was He trying to accomplish with the, with the Israelites in the desert exactly? Well, he was training them, he was disciplining them, he was conditioning them, he was teaching them what it means to be the chosen people of God because he had a very important mission for them. He was going to bring the Messiah through them, and if they could not learn to trust him, they would fail at that mission. And so whenever they stepped out of line, whenever they refused to believe him and complained and grumbled and did all of this, God disciplined them. He disciplined them, and that's what he does here. He brings these fiery serpents as a form of judgment against them. But his love for his chosen ones is so obvious that even in the midst of judgment, he offers hope. Even in the midst of affliction, he offers a cure. There's a proverb, beautiful proverb, Proverb 27, verse 6, which says, An enemy multiplies kisses, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. An enemy will say all beautiful things to your face, but you can't trust him. But a friend, though, though he might wound you in the moment, he's looking out for your good. I think that God is being a faithful friend to his chosen people here because he's not wounding them to destroy them. He's wounding them to save them. He's wounding them so that they will not eventually one day be destroyed and fail to accomplish the purposes which he has for them. So while the people are characteristically ungrateful and complaining, God is merciful and gracious. And that's not the only time he's done that. Consider the time that the Israelites spent in exile in Babylon. He said 70 years. Well, after the 70 years, what did he do? He restored them. They spent hundreds of years in Egypt. What did he do after? He restored them. 
You read the book of Isaiah and you find all of these judgments that God is pronouncing against the people. But he doesn't stop there. He goes one step further and offers a message of hope. And here's the lesson I think that there is for you and me there today. Our families, our communities, our societies, our workplaces, our schools could use more mercy and grace. It's relatively easy to point out problems. Rel almost anybody can do it. It's easy to bring a message of doom and destruction and judgment. But if we are to be the children of God, the people of God, and we're going to imitate him as our father, I think we ought to be people who go one step further and not just bring a message of judgment to the world, but bring a message of hope that comes through Jesus Christ. We've got to do both of those things. And I often see people stop with the first step, which is the, hey, you guys going to hell, okay? In some way, shape, or form. Maybe not in those words, right? But where's the message of hope that comes through Christ? Where is that? Because our world desperately needs it. And if we aren't going to bring that message, who is? I think we can take a page here from God's playbook, how he does that, even in the midst of, it's not the first time they've grumbled and complained. This is not the first time God is having to deal with it, and yet, and yet, he shows, he brings them, gives them a message of hope. Amazing. And the symbol of God's grace to the people in the desert comes in the form of a bronze snake hoisted on a pole for everyone to look at. See, this cure, and sorry, it's a little bit dim there on the, on the screen, um, this cure did not come from Aaron, did not come from Moses. In fact, if you go back in the story a little bit, you see that Aaron has died, okay? Again, as a result of all of the grumbling, complaining, murmuring, all of this in the past, Miriam is gone, Aaron is gone, okay? And the people have seen that, they've witnessed that. Aaron went up the mountain, didn't come back. God's judgment again, yeah? And so this, this bronze serpent idea didn't come from them, it came from God himself. And it's unclear why God chooses to use the image of a bronze serpent. I mean, after all, in the Garden of Eden, it was a serpent that deceived Eve, right? And really, anytime we come across the serpent idea, it's in a negative sense. Here, we're talking about the fiery serpents. Maybe God is trying to redeem that image in the, in the people's minds, saying that I'm sovereign even over your problems. Maybe it's that. We don't know for sure. But God tells Moses, make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and anybody that looks to the serpent, if they've been bitten by one of the other snakes, they will not die. They will be saved. They will be cured. And just like God said would happen, when anybody was bitten by a snake, they looked up to this bronze serpent, and they were healed. They did not die. I think it's interesting that if you carry on the story a little bit, uh, it, this bronze serpent is not really mentioned a whole lot of times in the Old Testament, but it is mentioned in the book of 2 Kings chapter 18 and verse 4, where we find that after they had gone in and taken possession of the promised land, they had actually begun to bring offerings or adore, worship this bronze serpent. Um, we see that King Hezekiah, who was reigning in Jerusalem, okay, who, who was a righteous king, at least relatively compared to all the others, King Hezekiah, through all of his reforms, he went, went on and destroyed the idols that the people had been bowing down to. He destroyed the Asherah poles, and he destroyed the serpent. Let me read for us just verse 4 
of 2 Kings 18 says, he removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it, and it was called Nehushtan. So maybe you'd been wondering, what in the world is a Nehushtan that's on your bulletin? Okay, that's what they came to call it. And for those of you that know Hebrew, uh, it, it kind of sounds like the word for bronze and serpent. Okay, you might even find that in your footnotes in the Bible. I think it's interesting that how, how the people had, had gone from looking to the cure that God had provided to now making an idol of that cure itself. See, because it was never the bronze serpent that saved them, was it? Was it a magical bronze serpent that had healing properties that it would emit to you when you looked at it? No, it was God. It was always God. But the people lost that connection. At one time, they made that connection. Evidently, they didn't do that for very long. And, they, and the bronze serpent became a source of idolatry among the people of Israel. We ought to be careful. I don't really have anybody, you know, an issue with people wearing like a cross on, on a necklace or whatever, but, but it's Jesus. Jesus is the cure, okay? Jesus is the cure, and we have to be sure that we make that connection. And we know that Jesus is the cure because he himself directly connects the story in the Old Testament to himself. In John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, in this conversation that he's having with Nicodemus, Jesus says, hey, you remember that bronze serpent in the Old Testament? Okay. In that same way, in that same manner, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Let me read for us. John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. See, Nicodemus would have known the story of the bronze serpent. Okay? He was an expert he knew the scriptures. He understood. And, and Jesus is making this parallel and saying, you see how the people were saved by their faith back then? Well, now they're going to be saved by their faith when they look to me. That is the way. That is the cure. That is the solution that God has provided. Jesus was, in fact, hidden in plain sight. There's something interesting about this story that I want to draw your attention to. When you go back to this, to Numbers 21, never says that God removed the fiery serpents from them. Never actually comes out and says that. It just says that God provided a cure. So it would seem that as the Israelites continued to go about their day, that these fiery serpents were among them, and daily they were reminded of their need to put their faith in God and their reliance upon the grace of God. You and I have a lot of fiery serpents in our lives, don't we? A lot of things that afflict us, perhaps in your relationships, perhaps at your work, perhaps in your finance, whatever it is. And, and it's, I think it's natural to pray that God remove those fiery serpents from our midst. I think we should. But often he doesn't really do that, but he does give us the grace that we need. He does give us a reminder of the need for us to trust him. Just as he taught the Israelites back in the day, he teaches us through Jesus to trust him, to trust that his solution 
His cure is enough for us. Our call is simply to believe, to have confidence in every person that has ever been made righteous, has been ever been justified, been declared righteous by God, was a person who put faith in God. Abraham was justified how? By faith. How was Moses justified? By faith. You go to Hebrews 11, there's this huge list of people, of faithful people. It was their faith that was counted to them as righteousness, faith in God. And that is our call today, to trust what God says about our problems and about the cure. We don't exactly know how the Israelites felt about all of this. I don't know if there was somebody in the audience that was going, hold up, what now? You want me to look at this bronze serpent and I'm going to be healed somehow? How's that going to work? Modern medical theory would balk at that idea, right? But here's the truth. The wisdom of God has not always appeared as wisdom to humans. Paul, for example, would say that, hey, listen, the cross of Christ uh, is foolishness to the Greeks. They just can't bring themselves to believe that the God of the universe would be put on the cross, that he would die. Doesn't sound like much of a God. And the Jewish people, they just can't bring themselves to believe that this man that they probably saw run around in diapers when he was young, that he is now the Messiah, the promised Messiah. That all of these, oh, the, the scriptures and the prophets they talked about, they just could not believe. And really in our day and time, we see this again and again, don't we? The leading, leading academics and public figures of our time will mock the idea I say, you, you believe in all that God and religion and Christianity and Jesus stuff? Really, you believe that? The truth is that the cross of Christ, that Jesus, is foolishness to those who are in darkness. Their eyes are blinded, their hearts are hard, they're unable to comprehend the wisdom of God. They simply turn away. They refuse to believe. And yet, those who, like children, believe it is they who are healed. Those who, like children, believe, who trust in the cure that God has provided, it is they who are healed. And so when we look at the problems of our lives, when we look at the problems in our communities, in our society, in our world, we have to understand that Jesus, in fact, is the answer. He is the answer. And that might sound like a pat answer. And, and you might say, oh, well, Prince, that's not very sophisticated, Okay. We have leading psychologists and sociologists and economists and all these people that have all of these reasons, all these explanations for why we are in the state that we are. What do you mean Jesus is the answer? What I mean by that is that, is that when we fail to take into account the spiritual realities that underlie our problems, we're not going to get very far whether that's problem in your own life, struggle with sin, whether that's uh, issues in your relationships with other people, whether it's uh, societal problems, whatever it is, if we discount the spiritual realities, the spiritual warfare that underlies all of this, of course a statement like this would sound like foolishness. And yet it is truth. Jesus is the answer to everything which ails us. And as the church, it is our responsibility to bring that truth to bear in our everyday lives, in our, with ourselves, in our relationships, in our societies, in our community. It is up to us to bring that truth to bear on those situations. My time is almost up. Oh, it is up. Sorry about that. I want to close by offering three things or, or suggesting three things 
that, that, mean, that, that sort of help us understand what it means to look to Jesus. Because if God is saying, listen, here are, you have all of these fiery serpents in your midst, and I've offered the cure, look to him and you will be saved. Here's what I think that looking looks like. The first is this. We must look above. See, our, again, our problems come from here, but our rescue comes from above. And so if we cannot move our sight, move our focus from our problems which surround us, from the storms which surround us, from the serpents that are all around us, if we cannot look above and beyond to Jesus who's hoisted on the cross, to the Son of Man who brings healing, we will never be healed. And so do what you have to do to look up and above and beyond the fiery serpents. Get some people to help you with that. Come to church. Let us help you with that, to look beyond your problems and look to the cure, to Jesus. The second is this, we ought to trust his ways. What he says may not make sense all the time to you. You may think, well, that, that just can't be right. Trust his ways. Isaiah would say that God's ways are far above ours. Job found that out the hard way, didn't he, for those of you that were in that series on Wednesday nights? That, 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 that God's wisdom is so far beyond our comprehension that we just have to trust Him. And when we do that, we reap the benefits that come from that trust and confidence. And finally, it's this, we ought to be strengthened by Jesus' example. Because Jesus Himself endured fiery serpents, if you will, endured suffering in His life, though He had done nothing to deserve it, unlike we, unlike us. He patiently endured the suffering that came his way, so as to fulfill God's purpose for his life. Let us do the same. Man, today there's a whole lot of fiery serpents in our lives. In any realm that you can consider, you'll find all of them. And often, they're a result of our sin or maybe somebody else's sin. It's God's judgment on us. However, even when he disciplines us in that way, he shows us mercy. He is gracious toward us. He offers us hope. And through Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross, He offers us a message of eternal hope. That is the cure that God has provided for us. And maybe it doesn't make full sense. <laughs> you may think, how does that work exactly? Listen, let's, let's, let's study that together, okay? Let's see what that means, what that looks like. How is Jesus the answer to our problems? But we ought to seek and trust, learn to trust God's wisdom for our lives so that we can be healed from the poison of sin in our own lives. Have you looked to Jesus? Have you been rescued from the fiery serpents in your life? Have you been rescued from the fiery serpent of sin which is keeping you separated from the source of your life, from God himself? And have you experienced the forgiveness of those sins through baptism in Christ? Or have you just gotten so caught up, maybe you've been on this journey, on this walk with God, and you've just been caught up by the problems. Are you failing to look up? Man, however, this church can come alongside you and help you look to Jesus so you can receive healing from the poison and the power of sin. Let us help you do that. So come let us know as we stand and as we sing.